it's easy in church life to get caught up in thinking all that goes wrong in church life. And certainly, wherever we are involved, things will go wrong because, uh, you know, we're, we're sinful people. However, radically obedient people to a radical loving God changes the world. It wasn't John Bechtel that planted over a hundred and some churches throughout Hong Kong. It was the Lord using surrendered and obedient people that were willing to ask the question, how big is my God? So this week we're going to continue in our series of Living in the Red. And for the next six weeks, other than a couple of breaks here and there, we're going to look at the middle part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Six very, very big applicable points to which Jesus teaches uh, on issues that externally seem pretty simple. But then he says, well, let's look past external righteousness. And so with each state, with each sentence, with each sermonette he gives, he'll say, you have heard it said. And then he begins to introduce an area of life of righteousness that common Israelite uh, Jewish Hebrew people would have understood. And he begins to open it up. And he begins to redefine major issues that maybe not on the surface, but as we consider, you and I can relate to very easily. And so for the next few weeks leading up to Easter, we're going to look at Jesus' words and his teaching when he said, you have heard it said. With that, let's look first at Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 20. You see, Jesus is shifting directions here because up until this point, his introduction in his teaching has taken a very uh, kind of a positive tone. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You're blessed uh, as, you, as you follow the Lord as these things happen, the poor in spirit, the meek in heart. And so he's taken this nature. Well, now he begins to shift gears to introducing us to a life of righteousness that was radically different than the legalism that had pervaded the culture of the day. And so in verse 20, he starts here. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisee and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's a tough way to start because the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they were the holiest people around. And Jesus starts there. And then he goes on. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother Raka is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Oops, there we go. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then, come offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way. Or he may hand you over to the judge. And the judge may hand you over to the officer. And you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth. You will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Lord, these are big words for us today, words that can feel almost too heavy to bear. Just a couple weeks ago, we talked about your burden being light and your yoke easy. And in the flesh, 
considering words about murder and anger are greatly troubling. Lord, in my own life, there have been times when I've struggled with resentment, with hurt, with pain aimed at other people. And yet I've seen you continually transform relationships. So I ask that you would do that for us this morning, that you would open our eyes to your word and that you would teach us. Lord, may, may I not get in the way of what you have for us today. In your name I pray. Amen. Last week we celebrated a holiday uh, that has become far more famous for debauchery, to put it lightly, for good alcohol, not good alcohol, copious amounts of alcohol, copious amounts of partying, and, and all the things that make apparently being an Irish a notable thing. But if we look at the life of the man that this holiday is supposed to remember, we learn a much different tale. Uh, if you know the holiday I'm speaking of, it was St. Patrick's Day last, I believe, Monday. And very few people anymore know much about St. Patrick, other than, well, he was a saint and he must have liked green. It's about the extent of our knowledge of St. Patrick. I don't know if he liked green uh, or if he liked clovers, but I know neither of those were a priority in his life. You see, as a teenager, Patrick was kidnapped and taken from his home in southern Britain. He wasn't Irish. And he was sold into slavery on the, Ireland, on the island of Ireland. During his six years as a slave, he came to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And he earned a reputation as a fervent evangelist. In the dark of the night, Patrick escaped his bonds and fled Ireland. He ran away. Following a long journey home, he stayed and he got comfortable and he lived a life of nice solitude and comfort, right? No. He entered into theological training and full-time service of the Lord. God spoke to Patrick in his dreams and told him that he would return to Ireland and serve as a missionary to the people who had kept him as a slave. In AD 432, 25 years after fleeing Ireland, Patrick returned to the place of his slavery. He didn't return with anger or malice in his heart, but as a missionary eager to convert the Irish. Patrick served in regions of Ireland where outsiders had never traveled and were not, were not welcomed. While roaming through Ireland, he preached to pagans and also instructed Christian believers. He was an evangelist that understood radical discipleship. He trained Irish helpers and ordained native local clergy. He was bringing a new way of life to a war-torn, violent, pagan culture. How? He was introducing people to Jesus Christ. His work was, was both groundbreaking and Christ-honoring. But the thing is, Patrick had been a slave. He had been treated unfairly, unjustly, and unmercifully. The only reason some surmise he was alive was because he was able to escape. If anyone had a right to be mad and angry and bitter toward the people of Ireland, it was the one they had held as a slave. He had every right in human understanding to hold a grudge, to be resentful, to let Ireland deal with Ireland themselves. 
they don't need me, and I don't want to go back. He could have said all that. But you see, Patrick understood the grace of the gospel message that says we are called as a people to be ministers of reconciliation. And what that means is we are called to invite people to renewed relationships, first with Christ and second with one another. And Patrick gave his life's work to that call to introduce people to a Jesus Christ that reconciles us to himself through his work, through his grace, through his suffering and resurrection. Why do I tell you that story? Well, if I was to examine this room, I think you're a good-looking bunch. I think you are often very successful. You uh, seem, from what I can see, to love the Lord. You enjoy worshiping together. And, you know, it's a joy to look out there, though some of you look a little sleepy, so hopefully you'll track with me. That's kind of a normal occurrence, and maybe when we make that, that service change time, we'll be a little more awake and excited about worshiping our king. But overall, you're a good-looking bunch. But if I look closely and had to ask a hard question, I would say I see an awful lot of murderers in the room. And we don't like to look at that. We don't like to admit that, and how dare I stand up here and call you a murderer. Okay, well, I won't. What I will do is I will ask you to let the Lord search your heart over the next few minutes and see what you might discover. Because as I've wrestled with this text for a couple weeks, I've had to admit to myself, this hurts. These are words that Jesus introduced that are relevant to all of us. Sometimes technology works and sometimes it doesn't. So we're going to move on. We don't need the slides. I'm going to open my Bible. Let me go back. First thing we're told, Jesus says in verse 20, Let me find verse 20 here. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, what next? There you go. Come on, follow with me. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. We're in trouble already. It's not a good start. What do we do from there? Well, then, thank you. We're getting there. Then he goes in, and notice he doesn't say, I want you to be very clear here, Jesus doesn't say, it was written, thou shalt not murder. He doesn't turn straight to the biblical command of do not murder. He turns to, you have heard it said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. What Jesus is doing is very carefully, very cautiously, and very clearly introducing people that over the years we have added on to the truth of the commandments. Because what was happening was the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, were teaching people that if you follow that bare minimum, because in all reality, I hope none of you have killed anybody. And I honestly, I don't think you would be here if you had. So for the most part, everybody could pat themselves on the back. Well, I am not a murderer. Look at me. I'm good. Great. But is that the heart of the law? No. And so Jesus says, you've heard it said. 
Yes, the gospel message, the law is true and is accurate. Don't murder. Do not look at your friend, say, I don't like you and shoot them. That is still as wrong today as it was when the commandments were given. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He redefines murder. You see, look what he says next. We can actually switch back to my computer. I've got a remote if anybody's up there. Cool. He says next, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Huh. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. Anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. He gives three very clear statements and compares those to being a murderer. Well, that's kind of different because if I look at verse 22, I'm pretty sure there's been times when I've been angry with a brother or a sister. And it's hard. And I know some of you might say, well, Mike, you know, there's such a thing as righteous anger. Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. And I also know us and I know our hearts pretty well to say 90% of the time our anger is probably not righteous. So let's go ahead and admit that, yes, there are times when we should be angry at sin. But that is the exception to the rule because most of us can get far more frustrated and angry and resentful and hurtful. And that is not righteous anger. What do I mean? Well, let, let's consider some, some case studies. You have worked a long day. You got to the office at 9 a.m. It is now 9 p.m. and you have just left. And you've gotten on the Cross Harbor Tunnel bus because you work in the island, but you live in Wampo. And I can't remember the name of it, one something or other. Traffic is backed up because everybody's trying to get home. And you just want that half an hour or however long it's going to take to be quiet, to have just a few moments of solitude, right? You're looking forward to that bus ride because finally you can take a deep breath and let down. And so you get on the bus, you find a seat on a cramped bus, and you begin to just close your eyes and relax for a moment. And then you hear, Why? I'm in the And somebody begins to talk loudly. And somebody begins to have a very clear conversation right next to you on their phone. And all you want to do is rest. And you can hear every word. And if you speak Chinese, you understand every syllable that comes out of their mouth. And that comes out of the phone because it's so loud. And the thoughts going through your mind are nothing short of anger and great fearsome frustration with that person. Maybe you can relate to that. Just a theory. Maybe you have the tradition, as many do, in one of my favorite things of Hong Kong culture. Sundays are family day. So Sunday nights come, the family, all the extended family, grandmothers, grandfathers, aunts, uncles, cousins, brothers, twice removed, adopted members, real members. Everybody comes in, but there's that one family member that when they enter changes the entire dynamic of the room. Everyone changes how they interact with one another. Everyone walks on eggshells or is frustrated or is concerned at how they handle the situation. 
And in the back of your heart, you're just wishing, I wish they weren't here. Sound familiar? Or you work for a boss, an employer, that knows all the right answers about following Jesus, says the right things, externally looks like they do all the right things and are righteous people. Yet in their treatment of you, they're angry, they're unfair, they ask you to choose decisions that are unethical, immoral, and sometimes even illegal. And they expect you to do that. They take advantage of you because you too are supposed to love Jesus and should therefore help them out. And you feel stuck. And as you feel more stuck, that resentment begins to grow in your heart because they should know better, right? Yeah, they should, but so should we. And so that resentment grows. Maybe you're a student in university and secondary school and you've got a friend and you've been friends for a long time and then suddenly they choose to make a decision that you know isn't the best decision. This doesn't just relate to those in school. And you love them and you try to talk to them But unfortunately, in the emotion of the moment, it becomes more of, you are doing this and it's going to be terrible. You should stop. Your intentions are great. Fight ensues. Conflict ensues. And now you're both mad. And there's two choices at this point. You could try to mend that relationship or sadly, what has often happened, a friendship is broken. And you go on with life wondering 20 years later, Whatever happened to that really good friend I had? Let's talk about murder, gentlemen and ladies. Because when we consider scenarios like that, I suspect most of us could relate to one, if not all of them. And Jesus boldly revolutionizes how we looked at relationships. And he boldly revolutionized our understanding of murder of relationships, and of what I referred to earlier as the ministry of reconciliation. If anyone who's angry with his brother will be subject to judgment, or anyone who is, then anyone says to his brother, Raka. Well, if you look at what that means, and you look at it in context, it would be similar, but even heavier, to me looking at somebody today and saying, you are a nobody, okay? You are nothing, Intellectually, you're stupid. Vocationally, you are unsuccessful. In any way, shape, or form, you aren't good enough and you, have of, you are of no value to me. Okay? That's what it would mean to say raka to someone. And so here, Jesus not only says, don't murder and look real closely at your anger, but he said, those of you that are devaluing others, Watch out. You're in just as much trouble. Be very careful. Because why? God values all of humanity. He loves every single one of us. Not all will enter into his kingdom for all eternity. But while we are here on earth, we are called to live a righteous life that points them to the heavenly father. And by devaluing someone, by telling them you're a nothing, you're a nobody. And maybe you don't even say it. Maybe it's just how you treat them. 
or don't treat them or ignore them, you are telling them their life is of lesser value than your own. We see that all over the world. We see it as as secular society today tries to teach us that humans are valued equally, yet if you are a Christian and you have these beliefs, you're down here, right? Or if you dare to take this stand, well, then you are lower. And yet at the same time, we turn our backs on the poor, the widows, the least of these, and we don't take care of them. So we've devalued them and we've tried to elevate ourselves. And the list can be long of ways we devalue one another. Those that might work for you. Well, they're not as important as I am. So my agenda matters more. And very subtly, very quietly, you communicate to them that they aren't as valuable. And if we call ourselves a follower of Jesus Christ, unintentionally or intentionally, we can be communicating to them that God doesn't value you either. And Jesus says, no, don't do it. Then he goes on, but anyone who says, you fool, it's a pretty strong word. Some translations use idiot. And the original Greek word is moro, not the last name of someone in our congregation. But it actually is the root of an English word that we know well. Anybody know? Moron. We can use that word pretty lightly, can't we? You moron. You don't know what you're talking about. You get cut off in a street. You can't catch the bus. The driver doesn't let you on. Somebody treats you unfairly. You call them a moron. You talk about them behind their back and call them a moron or belittle them. What are you doing? When we do that, whether it's in gossip or directly to their face, you know what we're actually doing? We are communicating to people that we hope they start to believe what we already know about them to be true. That they are a moron. That they are a nobody. That I don't like you very much. Now you're all looking at me like, Mike, why? I would never do that. No, we wouldn't. But yet we do. In our heart of hearts, we let resentment and anger and superiority and legalism and gossip and even racism sneak in in such ways that it hardens our hearts and causes us to live in broken relationships one with another and with our world. And what this text is all about isn't just eliminating murder from the world. That would be wonderful. But it's eliminating broken relationships from the world and saying, as followers of mine, I expect you to live at peace one with another. Paul says it directly. He says, make every effort to live at peace one with another. Word for word. And yet, what do we do in the church? Sadly, in this room, I have no doubt some of you probably know somebody else in this room that you haven't talked to for years because they hurt your feelings, because you're angry with them, because you're mad at them. Now, or because you hurt them and you don't want to say you're sorry. See, the interesting thing here about this text, and it's key, is because in this setting, what happens next? Well, 
we are invited not just to redefine murder and understand that God does not take it lightly and that we are to be a loving people, not a loveless people that can't look at humanity with the eyes of love that God has given us. But he says, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, if you are seeking to worship the Lord, you with me? And there, remember that your brother has something against you. So let's contextualize. Let's bring this forward. If you come into this room, we call it a house of worship. It can also be called a covered playground. (laughs) You know why it can be called a house of worship? Because we are called to worship our living God here together, corporately. But that means there's got to be something done about our hearts. And so right here, Jesus says, if you are seeking to worship God and you remember what, that your brother has something against you. Wait. Uh-oh. He doesn't say that you have something against your brother here, does he? <laughs> no. He says, look around. Does somebody have something against you? He doesn't say rightfully or wrongly. Uh-oh. He says, does someone have something against you? Go get them. Identify that there is anger present, that there is a broken relationship present right away. Admit it. Because often, and I am as guilty of this as any of us, there are times when we just don't want to admit that we live in a society of broken relationships. We don't want to admit that I hurt someone else's feelings. It couldn't possibly be my fault. It couldn't possibly be me because they just misunderstood what I was saying, right? Yeah. Jesus doesn't say if they misunderstood you or not. He says if you're in a broken relationship, immediately go fix it. Why? Because if that resentment, if that broken relationship grows... It breaks our ability to worship. King David says, if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord wouldn't have listened. Maybe I could say it like this. If I held on to that grudge in my heart, the Lord wouldn't be listening. If I hadn't let go of the hurt and pursued reconciliation with my brother or my sister, the Lord would not listen But if you follow on, King David didn't cherish that in his heart. And the Lord did forgive him. And King David was able to continue. These are heavy words, ladies and gentlemen, and they're not easy. And you say, Mike, you know, yeah, yeah, I've struggled with resentment, but it's not a big deal. It's not a major part of my life, and it's not that big an issue. It's just a small thing. It's just this one one little relationship. And we're not, even, we're not even that close anyway. And they don't even really think about it anymore. Or they've even forgotten about it. Okay, well, good for you. But you see, sin, I read this illustration this week, is like an acorn. Our hearts are like an acorn. You see, an acorn, all of us are an acorn. We have the capacity 
to allow sin to grow in our heart and to grow and to grow and to grow and to grow. That the steps between me and a mass murderer like Jeffrey Dahmer become less and less as I allow that guilt, that sin, that bitterness, that resentment, that anger to grow. It grows up into a full-fledged tree. You see, as humans, we do have sin in our hearts. We are fighting, warring every day against it. And if we give it root, if we let it take root, it's going to grow. However, there's hope. That's not the end. To correct murder, instead of allowing it to grow inside us, we instead surrender our hearts and our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we say, Lord, sanctify me, set me apart, purify me. And each day we give our lives to him and say, I'm here, Lord, I need you, I need your help. And we ask him, are there any broken relationships in my life right now? I will go pursue them immediately and do all I can to fix them. If I have done wrong to somebody much like Zacchaeus, I will fix it. Well, great. Well, that's good. So if we've wronged somebody, we should pursue fixing it right away, right? Good. If you flipped over in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18 you would realize that Jesus doesn't give a way out, that you can remain bitter and resentful to those that have sinned against you. (laughs) He actually says a very similar thing. If someone has sinned against you, if someone has offended or caused a broken relationship with you, it's okay, hang on to that. That's good. Just keep hanging on to it. No, he doesn't say that at all. He says, pursue them, deal with it. If they've sinned against you, try to feel, do all you can to help fix that sin and point them lovingly back to the ultimate ministry of reconciliation, that of Jesus Christ. Love them enough to walk with them through the pain of a broken relationship and invite them into the light on the other side. So in one hand, if we have sinned against another, we are told to when? Immediately seek out that brother or sister and pursue reconciliation. In Matthew chapter 18, we're told if we know someone has sinned against us, we're told to go get them. Not so that we can look at them and say, you sinner. But so we can invite them back into a relationship of love and of grace that points them to the the majestic love of our God and our King. Matthew 18 isn't meant to throw a rock at somebody. Matthew 18 is meant to be all about building healthy relationships and having those hard conversations. And if they don't listen, some serious steps have to be taken. But we will love them through every one of them. So what do we do? We say, Mike, you don't understand. I was treated so badly. Or I have messed up so badly. There is no way that relationship can be fixed. There is no way I could do what St. Patrick did. And you know what? You're right. In our own strength, we can't mend broken relationships. We can't fix them on our own. 
Because at some point in the game, we will get caught up in defending ourselves again. We'll get caught up in blaming again. Somehow, in our heart of hearts, when something goes wrong and we're trying in our own strength to live victoriously, it'll come back to, but it's not my fault. They did this. And we might not even verbalize it, but ultimately that's the goal. And we want to hang on to that root of bitterness, Paul calls it. And so we just hide it tight away. And we act like everything's okay. But the word for fellowship used in the New Testament, this word of koinonia, is is much more about harmonious relationships. And we don't get a harmonious relationship by faking that we're okay with each other. We get it by loving one another enough to pursue them, whether they deserve it or not, and say, I want a relationship with you. How? Well... You, take the first, you make the first move. Why? Because it goes like this. God is good, right? Yeah. In evangelical churches, we're supposed to do a couple things when I say God is good. The first thing we're supposed to do is say all the time. So let's try again. God is good. All and all the time. Right, and we're supposed to say it with some enthusiasm, so you did better. Good. You believe me so far that God is indeed good. Second, do we understand that God hates sin? We would, we would concede God hates sin, right? It's pretty clear in the scriptures. He is not a fan of sin. It makes him angry, correct? Uh-oh. Wait, so God is good, yes, all the time, and all the time God is good. But sin makes God angry, Right? It makes him angry. It does make him sad, but it ticks him off in righteous, holy ways because he is righteous and holy. Okay? What's, where's that leave us? We're on the outside, aren't we? Yeah. But God, in his infinite wisdom, in his infinite love, in his infinite grace, admitted, I hate sin, but I love those people. And I will give my own son who knew no sin to become sin for them so that they might be forgiven, reconciled, and adopted as sons and daughters into my family for all eternity. Ladies and gentlemen, we don't deserve a relationship with Jesus Christ. He has every right to be ticked off at us because we are sinners. We have done these things Jesus talked about here. And yet, if we understand the truth of the gospel, we realize what right do I have to be angry at anybody? When God gave me so much that he gave his one and only son that I might have life for all eternity. What rights do we have to harbor bitterness, to harbor anger? We don't. Why? Because God gave his own son. He is so good and so righteous that he said, I'm going to fix it. They can't do it on their own. I love them so much that I 
will make a way for them to be reconciled to me, to be brought into right relationship with me. So today, you think about those relationships in your life. You think about that anger, that resentment in your heart. And you ask yourself the question, if Jesus would do that for me, can't I get out of my chair right now and go settle my accounts with my neighbor, with my friend? Right before he was betrayed and killed, Jesus prayed that we might be one. Why? So that the world would see God. Maybe it's time that we looked closely at our relationships and at our hearts and said, Lord, you gave us Jesus out of your great justice. You made sure sin was paid for. But out of your great grace, you didn't make us pay for it. And when you look at that person that has wronged you, that you can't stand to be around, you say, Lord, right now, I will pursue reconciliation. I will pursue koinonia, righteous and holy fellowship. I will pursue love, grace, and the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ who redefined murder and then said, you can't do it on your own. That's why I'm here. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would be a people that pursues right relationships with one another. The resentment, the anger, the bitterness that we hold in our hearts. Lord, please give us the courage to right now let it go. To let your blood wash over our relationships. That we might be one. Lord, may we not harbor sin, anger. May we not devalue one another anymore. But because of your great love, help us to love one another. In your name I pray, amen.